It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Max Dupree once said, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you, and in between, the leader is a servant. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host, for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? How did Jesus prepare his disciples for his death? Our theme text, John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Thank you all. Also joining us today is Julie. I'm glad to be here. This is such an important topic this time of year especially. Absolutely. And so we're looking at Jesus preparing his disciples for his death. So coming up on today's podcast. So look, you know your world is going to fall apart. You know that those around you are going to be carried way out of their element. So how do you warn them without freaking them out? Let's see how Jesus refocuses his disciples' attention in about 15 minutes. It's one thing to refocus attention, but entirely something else to build a case for the future. In the face of imminent tragedy, this seems impossible. But see how Jesus does it in about 30 minutes. And what would your parting words be to those you most care about before being separated? Stay with us to hear the compassion, wisdom, and encouragement Jesus gives in about 45 minutes. But first, let's see how Jesus handles both friends and a betrayer all at once. If you were going to die tomorrow, how would you spend your day today? Jesus faced that very serious question 2,000 years ago. His answer was obvious. He would spend that entire evening with those he was closest to. He would prepare them, teach them, and encourage them for what was coming would be shocking and horrifying. The world of the disciples would be shattered, and he wanted them to be as ready as their imperfect minds could allow them to be. What he taught them that night through his words and actions was extraordinary. Even though it's not possible for us to get our arms around the depth of Jesus' compassion, wisdom, love, and clarity of mind, well, we're going to try anyway, okay? So what we will find is pure spiritual inspiration. We're going to begin with John chapter 13 and summarize the lessons and guidance Jesus gave right through John chapter 16. So John 13 begins with setting the context of what was happening. So they're in the upper room, and John puts things in context for us. And as we go through this subject today, we're going to look at the preparation themes that Jesus laid out for them. So the first preparation theme we're going to see is to know truth. John 13, 1 to 2. Jonathan? Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Okay, so we've got this context, this, these, these sort of the, the groundwork laid out for us. So there, there's really <clears throat> three points here that need to be looked at. So Julie, why don't we get started with those points? 
Jesus knew that his time was here and he knew he was going back to the Father. Jesus loved his disciples and would demonstrate that love in his final care for them. And Jesus understood the elements of his crucifixion and would soon face his betrayer. But I have a question. How did Jesus know that he'd be resurrected back to the Father? How did he know? Yeah, it says, you know, there's several places where it's pretty obvious that he's getting ready to go back to his father and he knows of that. How did he know that? Well, he knew that that was the the plan. Uh, That was the plan when he was faithful. And what he knew at this point is that he had been faithful. I can't give you point to the moment in time where it says, yes, I know I'm faithful here. But this begins saying that Jesus knew his hour had come and he would depart out of this world to the Father. So there's a surety that he knows that that's what's going to happen. I'm going back to where I came from. Now, he didn't know about the higher level that he would be given from previous but that's, a, that's another story. So he knew because he had acted faithfully for his entire uh, walk. Okay, so, but if he knew when he accepted the assignment to go down to earth for this ransom, was it a sacrifice if he knew that he wasn't going to stay dead forever? He, he knew automatically he'd be raised to heaven to be a temporary thing. Where's the sacrifice in that? Well, let's just remember that he had to prove himself faithful. It says he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So you can't say that through Jesus' entire ministry, he, he, it was a foregone conclusion. He had to be tested. But he got to a point where the testing was done, and he was crystallized. You know, and you think about an athlete preparing for an event. And if you're looking at the world's best athletes, you look at the incredible preparation and incredible discipline. And you say, well, look, they're already, they're already prepped up. How could it be a sacrifice to compete? Are you kidding? It's going to cost them everything. They lay it all out on the, on the field of play. And that's the way we have to look at Jesus. Whether it, he, his, his, his sacrifice, his, his obedience was, was a foregone conclusion, I believe, at this point. And he was able to walk through this so we could understand the depth of faithfulness. This is a really remarkable set of uh, chapters we're going to be going through. Well, let's look at an example of the Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps. When he trained, he and his coach tried to look at every scenario that could go wrong in any race so that nothing would take him by surprise. They had a plan for every possibility. Yeah, yeah. So, and Jesus, the same thing. He learned obedience, but the key is he learned it, and then he knew it, and then he acted on it. And that's what we need to understand about Jesus here. So, his next preparation theme, you know, no no truth. John lays out the context for us. Now the first preparation theme that Jesus puts in place is for his followers to be servants. John 13, verses 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Wow, what a radical difference this was from their experience with the Pharisees. This is a real humble concept of hierarchy. Yeah, yeah. This this is completely different than anything they would have ever, ever seen. Because Jesus knew he was going back to God, he began the process of preparing Christianity to be in place without him. 
because he wasn't going to be here. So Christianity had to be prepared. That's what these chapters are about. All of the following teachings and examples were to show the apostles the basis for their new faith. This is how you live. This is how you act. This is what you do. This is what you focus on. That's what this was all about. All, it, all of it would begin with the humility, the humility of feet washing. Several points here. Uh, let's get started with these. They needed that lesson that their coming leadership roles were to be founded in this great humility. They would always remember their Lord and Master humbly kneeling and washing their feet as their example. And they needed to understand that mutual service begins with each of them being first to serve. Here's, here's one. Wow, this point is amazing. They needed to observe Jesus washing the feet of Judas as oh. well as those who remained faithful. Good point. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Now, now I wonder, uh, Rick and Julie, did anyone wash the feet of Jesus after he washed the disciples' feet? You know, it's not likely because it seems to me, now I don't know for sure, but it seems to me it would have been written if that was the case. Uh, and so I think that they were so taken off guard by this, and then Jesus starts teaching them after that. And he says, you know what I have done? And he goes into um, his, his, his teaching and his example. So probably not. And, you know, looking back, if you were one of the disciples, you might want to say, you know, I should have taken that responsibility. I should have done that. But again, lesson learned. And that's really what these chapters are about, lessons learned. So we've got the preparation theme of being servants. The next preparation theme, and there's, a, there's a, a many, many preparation themes that Jesus gives them this night before he's going to die. This next one is no reality, no, it's darkness, and no, it's light. John 13, 18 to 19. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it occurs, you may believe that I am he. Okay, before we go to verse 21, just think about that thought. I'm telling you ahead of time. Jesus is really working at this preparation. John 13, 21, Jonathan, go ahead. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. So Jesus was telling his disciples, this time I'm speaking in plain language, not in symbols or parables, so you can understand. But Rick, they, they hadn't received the Holy Spirit of understanding yet. How much uh, would they truly understand in what he was saying? Well, and that's the thing, they didn't understand a lot. But this were these were lessons that would be lessons for all time, for the entire age of the gospel. These are lessons that all of us need to learn from. So even though they didn't get it because they were handicapped, if you will, by not having God's Spirit, they were given the lessons so we can always look back. You know, we look back on Peter's betrayals or, or denials, and we, and we learn great things from that. You know, well, poor Peter. Well, no, not poor Peter. He learned, we learn, we all win. That's the key. So Jesus boldly reveals that there's a betrayer in their midst, okay? That's why it says he was troubled. Uh, before any evidence of betrayal is present. Think about that. By doing this, Jesus is letting his apostles know that he knows many things before they occur. This is to instill faith in his messiahship and comfort them for the very near future events. Well, in other words, I'm giving you all the preparation I can so that you'll look back and realize it was all true and it was all going according to God's plan. Exactly, exactly. All true, all according to God's plan. Things are on time 
It's God's plan. We are following that. Let's continue with this, uh, this preparation theme of knowing reality, its darkness, and its light with John 13, 26 and 27. Jesus then answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Okay, so he introduces the betrayer to everyone. There is no equivocation in this identification of the betrayer. Further, Jesus' immediate response to Judas leaving um, is surprising from a human perspective, but very powerful from a spiritual perspective. What's, what's Jesus' reaction? Because he says, what you do, do quickly, then Judas leaves. Well, let's go, Jonathan, now to John 13, 31 to 33. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Wait, wait, wait. How is Jesus and the Heavenly Father glorified by a betrayal hmm. by Judas? Well, you know what? That's a good question. And the answer is because God's plan is being completed. God's plan has a permission of evil. So the permission of evil eventually, once the plan is all, when you can see the plan beginning to end, glorifies God because it shows the righteousness that has to be here on, on, on earth. So how is God glorified? Because the plan is happening. And Jesus doesn't get in the way of the plan. So Jonathan, let's, let's continue. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus shares the glory with God waiting for him because the betrayer is off to do his evil work. Julie, go ahead. And the Bible doesn't ex implicitly say why Judas betrayed Jesus, but Judas had this long history of being just plain greedy. Yes. Back in John 12, 6, it specifically says he was a thief who stole from the apostles' money bag. And I, I think that maybe he wanted Jesus to be more of a showman with these miracles, charging money for demonstrations. And Jonathan um, had read previously about how Satan had this evil influence over him at this supper, but that wouldn't really account for his bad character up to that point. Some think that maybe Judas was trying to bring about God's kingdom sooner, and by maybe delivering Jesus to the authorities, Jesus could proclaim himself king and overthrow that Roman government, but that's probably giving him too much credit. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you have to see that there was, there was a lot of greed, there was a lot of, um, there was disrespect in the heart of Ju uh, Judas. There simply was disrespect. So, you know, we have got to put this in place, and Jesus lets him go. He just absolutely lets him go. This is, this is very significant, and we'll, and we'll come back to these kinds of things in a little bit. Next preparation theme, keep reality real for those with passion and those with good intentions. Because, you know, Judas may have had passion and bad intentions, but what about those who had passion and good intentions? John 13, 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Okay, so you've got the 
the the foretelling of, of of Peter actually denying Jesus as well. But Jesus is also telling Peter of his faithfulness and that he, Peter, will be with Jesus. See, in, in this verse, and this is something that gets looked overlooked. It's Jesus says, where I go, you can't follow me now, but you will follow later. If Jesus says Peter will follow him later, that means he's going because Jesus doesn't say anything that doesn't come true. He knew Peter would be faithful. There's a powerful, powerful thought in that because Peter didn't know he would be faithful. Jesus knew and he was foretelling things to give them encouragement. A lot here. There's an awful lot here. So we're called upon to be humble and serve and we follow the greatest leader humanity has ever seen. Humility is now in order and betrayal and denial are both exposed. What does Jesus teach next? Even though his disciples are not really understanding all of what Jesus is saying, he now moves on to giving them a strong dose of encouragement. There is precious little time, and there is much to teach. John chapter 14 focuses on being at peace, being obedient, and being given help. So we're going to look now at John 14 in this segment, and he introduces a lot of things in John 13. And now 14 is really about, let me settle you in before I tell you more, okay? So we're going to begin with the next preparation theme of Jesus, and that is, for, we're in John 14 now, be not troubled, for the future is beyond your capacity to grasp. And folks, we have to listen to those words very carefully. The future is beyond our capacity to grasp. Don't worry about it. God's got it in hand. That's what Jesus says here. Jonathan, let's go to John 14, 1 to 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So believe in God. Believe also in me. Back in John 7, uh, forward into John 17, 6, it'll say, I have revealed your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have followed your word. So we know from that that the apostles believed in God, but was this the promised Messiah? Had they been duped? Did they build these false expectations based on Jesus's words and actions? How is it possible that after three and a half years of ministry, his enemies would kill him? And the promised kingdom wasn't going to be established. They needed to know that this was the plan of God Almighty, who they didn't doubt, and that the, Jesus was loyal to that plan so that they would also not doubt. So what you have then is in this place, Jesus is building up their confidence. And he's, and he's now walking forward saying, um, <clears throat> in my father's house are many dwelling places. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm showing you something that you don't really understand. And he's starting to explain these connections between God and himself, and soon how the apostles will be connected with them both as well. Yes, yeah, and, and this becomes really, really exciting. See, there's, there's great assurance when we can be shown our future is bright and significant while we're in a dark and unyielding corner, and that's really where they were. The key to this bright future is believing. Jesus reminds his disciples to believe in him because what will happen the next day will shake them to their core. So he's planting the seeds of hope and, and, and accomplishment and God's will in a big way to try to help them cope. Next, uh, preparation theme. We just got to fly through this. There's an awful lot of material. Perspective, connection, 
Jesus and the Father are irrevocably connected. Jonathan, let's go to John 14. We're going to skip down to verses 8 through 10. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The word that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. This is very powerful. These words are powerful in understanding the connection between God and Jesus. Notice the gentleness with, with, Jesus, with which Jesus answers Philip's request. He says, show us the Father. He doesn't say, come on, Philip, get with the program. He's like, Philip, have I been so long with you that you don't understand this yet? So there, there's four basic points here. Let's go through those. I am a clear reflection of the Father. If you see me, you should understand him. The next point, I reflect him so thoroughly because I'm completely intertwined in doing his will. And it's the Father's influence in me that guides my works and actions. And later on in John 17, 21 to 23, Jesus will complete that connection picture by praying that his followers could all be one. Just a quick quote. It says that, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they may be in us, end quote. So meaning those followers would also be a clear reflection of the Father and are all unified with God and Jesus. So the point, the end result of this, think about this. The end result that Jesus is beginning to lay out is, I'm, there, are, there are many dwelling places in the heavenlies that I am preparing for you. I'm, essentially, I'm custom making them for you. There is going to be a, a calling to something that, that is beyond what you can imagine. And part of this is to be connected. And we'll see in the next segment especially, we'll see about the connectivity between God, Jesus, and those members, uh, those the, the true disciples. The connectedness, though, with God and Jesus is very, very powerful. Jesus basically says, I speak, Father, because I, I say what you tell me to say. I do because you tell me to do. Isn't that where we want to be? We're supposed to be exactly like Jesus in relation to the Father's will as best as we can. So a lot here <clears throat> in terms of understanding the Father, the connection between Jesus and the Father. So now, next preparation theme, loving obedience and help along the way. Now remember, Jesus is preparing his disciples for life without him, for Christianity to be able to grow and flourish without Jesus being the guide he will be in heaven. How do you do that? Well, he's opening all of the things that we need to understand um, in these next verses. Uh, <clears throat> once his connection with the Father is clear, Jesus opens the door to spiritual abundance. Jonathan, let's go to John 14, 14 through 17. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that it may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive because it does not see it or know it, but you know it because it abides with you and will be in you. Okay, the spirit of truth. This is God's power, God's influence, God's Holy Spirit. It will be in you, just like it was in Jesus. This is the power to do things and to follow direction in a spiritual way that is not normal. 
It's not normal. Jesus is the first one to have God's power dwelling within him, and the true church, the true disciples, are the only other ones who have that, that spirit dwelling within them. So just some basic points on this. Well, he said, ask in my name and receive. And does that mean we get whatever we ask for? <laughs> no. Right. It means you receive what's in your highest spiritual welfare. So ask correctly. Also, there is a work to be done. Do what I command out of your love for me. Because I must leave you, he said, I'll advocate for you with the Father to send his spirit, which is, of course, his power and influence. Jesus personally advocated for us, for another helper. That's amazing that we've got this connection looking out for our best spiritual interests for the last 2,000 years. And we've produced a wonderful two-minute animated video, a CQ Kids video called What is the Holy Spirit? It's great for adults, too. You can find that and a lot more on christianquestions.com slash YouTube. What is the Holy Spirit? Okay, so this Holy Spirit is God's power and influence working within Christianity. And you're right, Jesus says in these verses, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And so Jesus is the one who goes and opens this door for us, just like God opened that door for him. Next, Jesus assures us that the gospel will be preserved. We could not know it without God's Spirit. John 14, 25 to 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, which the Father will send in my name, it will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I said to you. Now, many years later, the Apostle John wrote down all Jesus told them. How did he remember or recall what happened in such clarity? It was through the Holy Spirit, God's power and influence. He was inspired. Right, right. The, God's power and influence told John what to write. That's what this is telling us. And that gives us great confidence to say that all of what we were told, all of what we're given, shows us the power of God in the gospel, and the gospel is true. That's the thing. That's the big point here. And how would John know the whole prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? John was asleep. So same answer, the Holy Spirit would, um, his power and influence would tell him what to write. So Jesus assures us that his going away is necessary, his second coming is certain, and there would be everlasting fellowship in these mansions being prepared. But why couldn't the Holy Spirit come before Jesus's death? Why wasn't that influence and that power given while he was still alive? Because the price hadn't been paid. Jesus had to sacrifice himself for Adam because the whole point of Jesus' followers getting the Holy Spirit, being begotten by that Spirit, is so they can become ministers of reconciliation, so they can reconcile the world to God later on in the resurrection. You don't have reconciliation if you haven't paid the ransom price. So if there's no ransom price, there is no reconciliation. If there's no reconciliation, there is no Holy Spirit. It's very clear what, what, uh, what Jesus is laying out for us here. It's profound. And this is the last night before he dies. I mean, folks, think about the intensity of this, and he's just pouring his heart out to them. Let's go on to the next preparation theme. There's, there's so much to cover here. This is amazing. Next theme is the peace of Jesus. John, uh, Jonathan, John 14, 17, uh, 27 to 31. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This legacy of peace is given to all of Jesus' disciples up to this day. It's kind of like our special inheritance, but it's not available any other way. And it's the assurance that no matter what, as you often say, Rick, it's all good. 
because your life is under God's providence. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this peace is unique. It's different. And, and it's something that you want to aspire to having in your life by being a follower of Jesus. Now, Jesus gently reminds them what his journey of faithfulness will bring. Let's go to uh, verse 28, Jonathan, of John 14. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, from the apostle's standpoint, how can you rejoice if Jesus is going away? Their expectation about Messiah doesn't really match what Jesus is telling them. Yeah, you're right. Their expectation, remember when, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, it's Hosanna, save us now. I mean, there's this overrule, overrun Rome, you know, be the king. Everything's great right here, right now. No, that's not the plan. So he's saying, you know, I, I, I'm going, I, I said I'm going to come to you and, um, you know, you need to understand that this is a good thing. Even though it's not what you expect, it's a better thing than your expectation because this makes it an eternal plan. And he says, I go to the Father who is greater than I. I am the Father's Son. He is the Father. I go to him because I do his will. Next, Jesus reminds them that he is, by God's grace, telling them these things before they happen so their faith can find a foothold of strength in the coming turmoil. And believe me, there is a ton of turmoil right around the corner. Uh, verses 29 to 31. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let's go from here. So when he says, for the ruler of this world, which is Satan, is coming, he is coming through Judas. Judas is delivering Satan's betrayal package, mm -hmm. but it's Satan's betrayal of the Father that we're seeing. Yeah, now, now obviously Judas betrays Jesus. But just remember that Satan has betrayed the Father, and he is trying to upend the Father's plan. Not a good plan, incidentally, to, to try to upend Jehovah God's plan of, of, of um, salvation. Just it, it, it doesn't work, but Satan is being cast down through this. And God, and I'm sorry, and Jesus knows this, and he is rejoicing, even though it's very, very painful. So summing up, what the peace of Jesus can do. It's unique. It stabilizes during change and unrest. It is based on God's providence and is unfazed by Satan. See, the peace of Jesus is unfazed by Satan. This is all possible because Jesus does exactly what the Father commands him to do. Exactly. That's what faithfulness actually looks like. It's amazing to see the tender care of Jesus so aptly expressed right after he dealt with his betrayer. Jesus has assured us of his connection to God. How does he explain our connection in this whole thing? Jesus is being very methodical as he unfolds how God's plan will work for his disciples once he is gone. The next piece of encouragement is perhaps the most moving explanation in all of Scripture of how disciples of Jesus are intrinsically connected to God through him. There is, in John chapter 15, a dramatic sensitivity in the picture that Jesus paints to show us the connection. Our next pre preparation theme is connection. This time, 
Previously, the connection theme was God and Jesus. This time it's God, Jesus, and all true disciples. Jonathan, we're going to go to John chapter 15. We're, we're going to read verses 1 through 2, 4 to 5, and 7 through 8 to start. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Well, Rick, in verse 2, the translation we read says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But that's not the real thought here, that word takes away, is it? No, actually, it, the, the word actually means to take up. Now, it can mean to take up in a way, but it, it actually literally means to take up. And what it's talking about is in, a, in a, a grapevine situation where branches sometimes grow along the ground, and the vine dresser has to literally pick them up, take them up off the ground, and wash them and clean them so they can be productive. And Jesus, I, we didn't read the verse, but Jesus says, you are already cleansed. So you, aren't, you are not these branches I'm talking about here, but sometimes some Christians will end up running along the, the, the surface of the, of the world, if you will, instead of being lifted up spiritually. And I will have to, the vine dresser will have to pick them up, take them up, and, and, and make them so they can be productive again. But, so so there's, a, there's a tremendous, beautiful, deep connection here. I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser, you are the branches. Jesus' faithfulness made this close connection with the Father possible. We don't have this connection with the Father without Jesus' faithfulness. This vine is a picture of how Christianity was meant to work. Three, three points on this. Abiding in his faithfulness is the way we bear fruit, and having his words abiding in us open opportunities, and all this brings glory to God. So this vine picture once again shows that interconnectedness between God, Jesus, and the disciples. And we have to understand how important this interconnectedness is. Jesus is going to be leaving them. He's going to be crucified. They are going to be shocked out of their lives in the next 24 hours. And he's telling them all of these things. So they will at least have something to go on now, but we can always go back to later in their Christian walk. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Next preparation theme, joy from being loved and being obedient. So we, we talked about the peace of Jesus previously. Now we're going on to joy. Uh, John chapter 15, 9 to 11. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Okay, my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. The interconnectedness with God and Jesus are the basis for our obedience. We have to understand that. Their connection is the basis for our obedience. This relationship gives great joy to Jesus, and he wants to share that joy, his joy, with us. Well, Rick, the world doesn't know this kind of joy. No. No, no, this is, this is just like the peace of Jesus. This is different 
You don't find this in 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 your corner uh, corner gr- uh, drugstore. You just it's not it's not for sale in the world. It's something that you can only find through and God through Christ. And I like when it says you'll abide in my love because when you abide somewhere, that's your address. That's where we live. So we're supposed to live in this place of love and joy and peace. And so we abide there. We're supposed to bear fruit. You are connected. You have the personal attention of the vine dresser, the personal attention of God Almighty in your life, pruning and helping you grow. I mean, look, how much better does that get? I mean, really, you know, if you want to grow spiritually, there is no better way to do it than to be connected with God Almighty and His Son, Jesus. So now, so from this theme of joy that he talks about, and it's just such a wonderful thing, the next preparation theme is to love one another. Now you think about that, and it's like, wow, it took him a long time to get to love one another. Why would it take so long? Well, let, let's go through this and, and find out. John 15, 12 to 14, and then 16 and 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. This command, this I command you that you love one another. So our job description, Rick and Julie, is to be a fruit bearer. It's to be a fruit bearer. And part of the bearing of that fruit is to love one another the way that I loved you. Now think about this. Why does it take so long to get to love one another? Let's go back to John 13. Jesus began this time of teaching by washing his disciples' feet. He humbly served them. He has walked them through service and betrayal and knowing truth and heavenly places, his peace, trials, the comforter, the vine and the branches, and the gardener picture. All of this brings us to loving one another. So how do we do that? And the answer is to do it the same way Jesus did. And he says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, why would you say, well, he's my friend and he's commanding me? Because he's our Lord. He's our master and we listen. But he gave his life for us. This is a powerful picture. Love one another as I have loved you. This is not something that you skimp on. You know, Jonathan, like you said, just be a fruit bearer. You don't skimp on loving one another either. You know, if you're going to bear fruit or you're not, you're going to love one another or you're not. Don't play games. We're someplace in the middle. So now he gets to this beautiful theme of love one another. And you almost feel like, and they lived happily ever after. (laughs) But no, because the next uh, preparation theme is impending persecution. And we go to John 15, verses 18 through 21 for this one. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. So Jesus goes from love one another the way I have loved you. And then he says, if the world hates you, it's a strong approach. You know, it hated me before it hated you. 
Um, the world loves its own. You're not of the world. You're not going to be liked. And so, and he says, a slave is not greater than his master. If I'm going through persecution, you will most certainly go through that as well. So you went from this all, this kumbaya moment of love one another to there is persecution in each of your futures. There's no way to get around it. Jesus informs his disciples of coming persecution only after he has given them all the tools necessary to be faithful through such difficulty. Loving one another must be in place to endure persecution so we can bind ourselves together in the unity of our faith. Now, understand the importance of that point. Love one another before impending persecution is on purpose because with persecution, you need support. You need one another. You need to be tied together. So he's giving us the way to deal with persecution by loving one another and so we can go through and deal with those things. His next point, his next preparation theme, is understanding the spirit of truth. And this is John 15, 26 to 27. When the Helper comes, which I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, it will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Okay, so now we've got the, the Helper is introduced as the spirit of truth. Back in John fourteen seventeen, it was introduced in, in, in uh, uh, John fourteen seventeen. Now it's explained a little bit. This function of God's Spirit enabled his disciples to truthfully testify about Jesus' life and the entire gospel message. So the Spirit of truth is in place, and it helps to reveal and understand things. For a focused study on the Holy Spirit, see episode 804, How Does God's Spirit Work? You can find that at ChristianQuestions.com. And I just have a quick question. How does this spirit testify? How is it speaking if it's God's power and influence? I know you did a podcast maybe 10 years ago in 2010. It was number 595 called How Did God's Spirit Work? But I I honestly don't remember. Well, you know, and you know, in, in these verses, in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, we're, we're not covering all the verses because we just don't have time in one podcast to do that. But in part of John 16, Jesus talks about the Spirit testifying about three different things. I don't remember exactly what they are off the top of my head. And you say, well, how would the Spirit do that? Well, what we see is at Pentecost, when Peter is begotten by the Spirit, remember the tongues of fire and Peter is speaking? He's the one who testifies to these things. So the Spirit is speaking through him. That's how the Spirit testifies. And we have other examples of that as well in Scripture. So the Spirit is not this, this extra voice. It speaks through the humanity that it is influencing. That's how it really does that. But that's a really, really good question. Okay, so what we have then is this spirit of truth. So now it's not just a comforter, but it's a spirit of truth, a spirit of understanding, a spirit of the depth of knowledge necessary to know and preach the gospel. You see how Jesus is setting them up so that they can be the introduction of the true gospel to all the world and have it carry through for thousands of years because he is setting them up with everything they possibly would need to do that. The power and privilege of being connected to God through Jesus gives us the ability to handle persecution, and that is amazing. Jesus' time with his followers is growing short. How does he bring this final time of teaching to a close? We would expect Jesus to bring them to as prepared a state of mind as possible. 
In a matter of hours, their lives would be turned upside down and their expectations would be shattered. While Jesus knows that they will all falter temporarily, he also knows that they will not only recover, but they will eventually flourish. So again, Jonathan and Julie, it's important to realize that Jesus is giving them all of this this information, all of this encouragement, all of this direction. He knows they're going to fall, but he also knows that this direction will be, they'll be able to come back to thousands of times throughout all of the age of the gospel to be encouraged, not only them, but we ourselves. Here we are, we live 2,000 years later, and we're looking at this, these teachings with awe because it shows us the plan of God literally being unfolded before our very eyes. So let's get now into John 16. The first preparation theme is that harsh reality is coming. John 16, 1 and 2. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogues. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering a service to God. Man. So he's saying that I've spoken to you these things uh, because I don't want you to stumble. And then he says, okay, you know, you feel like, okay, you're being built up by that. He doesn't want me to fall. And by the way, they're going to make you outcast from the synagogue, and people are going to think that killing you is a service to God. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. Remember Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus, what did he do? He was one of several Pharisees who went out and hunted down Christians to kill them, to persecute them, because he thought he was serving God. Jesus is telling us this is what's going to happen, and he's telling his disciples. Now, if you're his disciples and you hear this, you're probably not feeling like, wow, that's great. You know, uh, gee, I'm glad I know this. This is really pumping me up for— Where do I sign up for this? Yeah, yeah, really. So the next preparation theme, uh, harsh reality was coming. That was the first one. The next one, hardship and loss will bring greater strength and ability. So he tells you how hard it is. And then he helps you understand a little bit of the why. John 16, 5 through 7. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send it to you. Okay, so now he's saying that you need to understand that with this hardship, to be able to cope with all of the things that are coming, I have to leave because my leaving brings you the Spirit. If I don't go, the Spirit doesn't come because I have to pay the price. God has to raise me from the dead. I have to advocate you for, to the Father for you, and then the Spirit comes. Jesus observed that his disciples were not asking questions. You know, he's, he's, um, he says, you know, you're not asking me, where are you going? You're so he's watching them, and he's, and he's seeing, I think, that he's seeing that they are very, very reticent about what, what's, what's going on with their lives right here. They're, they're unsure about what's going to happen. So he reads their hearts, and what he saw was mounting sorrow. His response to this is not some shallow, oh, don't worry, you know, it'll be fine, just don't you worry. Instead, it's a powerful assurance that what is happening will make them stronger and better equipped than they could ever imagine. But again, the strength and equipping only comes in Jesus' absence. They weren't used to that. Imagine being them, and he's saying, yeah, and you're going to do all of this without me being with you. 
Well, for three and a half years, they were never without him. So this is important, and he, he strives to, to help them understand this again and again and again in these chapters. So hardship and loss brings greater strength and ability. The next point, the next preparation theme, this is an important one. Realize that you are at the beginning. Be patient, and you will understand in time. Realize that you are at the beginning. Be patient, and you will understand in time. John 16, 12 to 15. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when it, the spirit of truth, comes, it will guide you into all the truth. It will glorify me, for it will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that it takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Okay, so Jesus is disclosing great news. Once they have God's Spirit working in them, it will give them deep and profound meaning, a, a deep and profound meaning to all of Jesus' teachings. How many times, you know, through the, the ministry of Jesus, you hear him say things and, and they just don't get it? You know, uh, he, he's, he's just on a different level than they are. But this is telling them, this is great news that once the Spirit comes, everything I've said to you in the past, which you will write down because the Spirit will give you the ability to recall it, uh, will make much more sense. So this means that the very plan of God himself will be clearly understandable to them. Why? Because they are the foundation of Christianity. Christianity is what changes the world. Now, Jesus changed the world. We know that. Jesus himself changed the world with his sacrifice. He gave his life for Adam. But the ministry of reconciliation doesn't happen without true Christianity. Jesus is preparing for the trials, the, the development of that ministry of reconciliation. And John 13, 14, 15, and 16 are showing us how he does that. Next preparation theme. New life comes through pain and suffering. Joy is greatest after trial. Nobody likes to hear that. But Jesus, you can tell in these, in these verses, he's not pulling punches. He's just telling them what's what. John 16, verses 20 to 22. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will re rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Joy is not an emotion. It's a state of being. And I think joy comes from seeing this providence of God's overruling. It's hard, but we have to remember that we can live joyfully even when things are falling apart. You know, and that's such an important point. He is talking about, you know, he their joy will not be able to be taken from them. And... To live with joy is not a feeling. It is just a way you approach your life. If we approach our lives joyfully, we have made a choice. Joy is a choice to approach the life and see, see through the lens of God's providence. That's what Jesus did. And when he says, you know, way back earlier in the podcast, he said, you know, Satan, or, or I'm sorry, Judas is left uh, to betray me. Yay, this gives glory to God. Why does he say that? Because the plan has to be fulfilled. 
for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You know, that's what we're looking at here, and he's preparing his disciples for this. Jesus has established a pattern of revealing and repeating their coming hardships, and then reminding them of the more than compensating blessings that will follow. So he tells them, it's going to get difficult, but there's a blessing. It's going to get difficult, but there's a blessing. He's teaching them to recognize that trial and tribulation will always bring blessing because he is faithful and because they follow him. Trial and tribulation will always bring blessings to those who are, because Jesus is faithful and because we follow him. Always. That's what he's telling us. Next preparation theme. Remember the simplicity of the most important facts. John 16, 27 and 28. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. Think about how simply he puts what's happening in these verses. God loves you. Because you have loved me, and because I came forth to the world, into the world from God. Okay? God loves you because you loved me, and I'm here. I came from, forth from the Father, and I'm going, uh, and I've come into the world, and I'm leaving the world, and I'm going back to the Father. That's what this is all about. And he, he breaks it down very simply to help them understand that it's not going to be easy. This is the simplistic way to look at it, the simplest, most important facts of the matter. Don't forget these facts, and all of the trauma will fit into place if you remember these facts. I came from the Father. I go back to the Father. There's sacrifice involved in between. God loves you because you love me and believe that I came, that, that I am his son. I came into the world. I did God's will. I paid the price, and now I go back to him. It's very straightforward. Our final preparation theme is... Um, believe that nothing can stop God's glorious plan. Inner peace comes from belief. In other words, inner peace is not from hoping or wishing. <laughs> not even remotely close. And you know, and, and Jonathan, the, the, the sad thing is that many of us confuse those things. We confuse hope and wishing with faith, and it's not, okay? Belief is something that is is founded on much more than I, I would like something to be. It's much, much deeper than that. And so here, Jesus now, these, these next verses are the last verses, the last words that Jesus speaks to his disciples in an uninterrupted fashion. After this, they're going to go to the garden. He's going to pray the prayer of John 17. Then he's got the Gethsemane experience, and then he gets taken away. These next two verses are his final farewell to them. What are they? John 16, 32 and 33. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage I have overcome the world. You will have trouble in the world, but you take courage because I have overcome the world. I have put things back in order. So it's going to be difficult. You're going to be scattered. You're going to run. You're going to be afraid. You're going to doubt. But be of good courage. I have overcome 
the world. Jesus is leaving them with the most positive and powerful point he can possibly leave them with as he is now going to go into this night of trial and tribulation. These are Jesus' final words of teaching to his disciples before his crucifixion. These words, I have overcome the world, are exactly what the Apostle John described about the surety of Jesus when these teachings began, and that was way back in the beginning of John 13. The message is abundantly clear. Jesus had overcome the world. What would come next would be the ultimate example of crystallized obedience that the world would ever see. And there's such comfort when we have a leader who's so completely sure of the way forward without a shred of doubt. I think Jesus showed this incredible leadership that we can rely on. He did. He did. This, this leadership is very—it's it's hard to fathom how deep it is and how powerful it is. You know, I have been reading these verses, you know, for my entire life, you know, since I'm 15 and 16 years old reading and being inspired by these verses. And coming around again after all of these years, it's a whole new level of inspiration because what we see is the price that Jesus paid and the way that he cared for his followers is this magnificence that shows us this is what Christianity is about. You are supposed to be like this. This is how you need to act. You need to be my representatives because I won't be there. But don't you worry. You get the help that you need. You have the compassion that you need. You'll have the study helps that you need. You have everything that you need because I have overcome the world. That was Jesus' message to his disciples the night before he was crucified. What a powerful powerful lesson for us. Always remember that Jesus overcame the world. And if he overcame the world, you and I, we have nothing to fear. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your favorite podcast, please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Next week, we'll be talking about how Jesus changed heaven and earth by his death and resurrection. Talk to you then. <laughs>